Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-foot by 10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale in-store and online at cabelas.com. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. This is Daniel LaRue, your host. So happy to have you with us for this episode. This episode is with Nate Duncan of Basketball Insiders, and we talked about the idea of doing a week one overreaction podcast that ended up being a little bit later and basically being a first week and a half overreaction podcast. But we go for an hour 22, hit a lot of topics from the young teams that we're excited by to what's going on with the Cavs and the Bulls to... A question about whether the Lakers are still tanking, whether that was always the plan, stuff like that. The Warriors, of course, because we both are around the team a lot. So I really enjoyed it. It was a very fun podcast to do, and we hit on a lot of big topics and the sport itself. So I really hope you like it. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, man. Always a pleasure. I figure the best place to start is your biggest takeaways from the season so far. Yeah, the the week one massive overreaction podcast. <laughs> Let's see. I mean, I think the way the Rockets have played has been a pretty big one to me, other than the fact that they haven't really beaten anyone aside from Miami, and you can't take much away from that performance against the Warriors last night when Howard and Jones and Beverly were all out. I think their defense has been quite a revelation. James Harden is trying harder. Trevor Ariza is a massive, massive upgrade over Parsons Beverly is getting more time when he's been in there so you know although I worry a little bit about whether he can hold up over the course of an entire season in big minutes due to his style and health concerns but I think this is a team that you could construct a narrative about how they would be better I didn't think that they would be especially with the loss of depth but the pieces pretty clearly fit together better so far and uh, Papa Nikolaou is also someone we have to mention he's someone who gives them the ability to play small with a guy who's tough enough to play stretch four and shoot threes and also like a decent wing backup, which they never had last year either. 
Yeah, Black has been surprising to me. I, I I didn't think that much of him honestly when I was in when he was in college, but he's done a, been a very important piece for them. And I was t- I've talked with a couple people before the season started, and when they lost two huge depth pieces in Omer and Lynn, it felt like they were going to have to have at least two guys step up, and it feels like Black is going to be at least one of those two. That was the other part of the question too: is could Daryl Morey pull more guys out of his hat, minimum salary guys. And there are some candidates. There is Black, there's Nick Johnson, there's Troy Daniels, there's Isaiah Cannon, guys like that who, you know, basically are uh, what you would think of as replacement-level talent, at least coming in. And they've gotten good enough contributions from those guys that there hasn't been an enormous fall-off when they go to the bench. If you're trying to place them, obviously I'm not trying to figure out where they'll be at the end of the year, but – your early take on where they fit in terms of the power structure of the West. Well, are we basing this simply upon if a playoff series began right now? Is that sort of well, the yeah. idea? The top uh, rivers, they would kick our butts right now for four games to zero if we played after the uh, the Warriors game. I think that's part of it, but it's also, you know, kind of what we've seen so far makes you think about. So, like, for example, to use the Clippers as an example, they're they're not playing well right now, but I haven't seen anything that makes them seem structurally deficient. Oh, I I disagree with you on that. I think their problems on the wing are really something that makes me feel like they, unless they can upgrade there somehow, that I can't quite put them into that championship tier that I think a lot of people thought were there. And then also I think Blake Griffin hasn't quite looked as explosive. He's taking a lot of jumpers. And, you know, I think Chris Paul had hit some nice mid-rangers, but I think you can expect a little bit of regression. I don't know that he's going to be just due to aging, not through any fault of his own necessarily, but I don't think we can count on him as really being a top five type of player by the end of this year uh, with him getting up there in age. So, I do actually worry a little bit about that Clippers team, and I, I had them sort of among the top five teams in the league that I felt like were really in that top tier of championship contention, and now I don't think I would have them in there right now. For me with the Clippers, I picked them to have the best record in the West, but I never really saw them as a championship team just because I, I struggled to see how they would beat the really good teams in a seven-game series. I think that's kind of the difference. I always thought they were built well for the regular season because they have a lot of talent and they're the type of team that can get ahead by 15 to 20 and just run a team off. They haven't done that much yet. But you're right that this has definitely made me have less faith in them as a championship contender because Matt Barnes is not the answer at small forward for any elite team. I mean, he, he's a nice player, you know, he's, he's not a bad, not a bad player to have, but if you're relying on him as a starter and to play starters minutes and to have that kind of responsibility, you're going to get exploited. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. Especially, I mean, he was, a, he's always sort of been, you know, he's got that kind of weird, you know, fluky form where he kicks his legs out a little bit and, and he's, usually sort of been in the 34, 35% range, but now he can't even hit any kind of shots at all. And, and what we've seen uh, in the last, really the Utah game, the Warriors game, and then that game against Portland is they'll run a pick and roll with Chris and Blake. Blake will, you know, and then they'll also down it. So Paul is being forced towards the baseline. They'll kick it back to the free throw line area with Griffin, which is normally an area where he can really attack. But Barnes's guy is coming in from the opposite wing digging down, and then Barnes isn't able to make them pay for that strategy. 
Yeah, and I think Blake, as you mentioned, has done way too much settling so far. It kind of feels like he's trying to establish his jump shot, and it's not necessarily there yet, and it's just not the centerpiece of his game. And it feels like not only is he doing it at points where he's kind of seeing kind of settling for it, meaning that it's later in the shot clock or whatever, he's embracing it. There were moments in the Warriors game where I was just sitting there going, you could do much better than this shot. Yeah, the other thing, too, is Matt Moore reminded me of this the other day on Twitter, is he had a back injury during the offseason, and we don't know how much that affected his training. You know, the details on that were always very sketchy. So that could it be an issue as well, but he definitely is not getting into the room as much. We haven't really seen any highlight dunks from him yet this year. And he hasn't been quite as uh, much of a bull in the post as he was going down the end of last year. Agreed. I feel like we might as well hit the other West team that to me has been a, somewhat of a disappointment, and that's Portland. I think what I'm seeing with them is what I expected to a degree, which is that they were so on all cylinders last year that any dip from them makes them very susceptible. Well, have the, have they really been that disappointing? I mean, what game have they lost that you would have expected them not to lose so far? I mean, they lost that close one to the Warriors at home. Their defense actually has been better this year so far, which was always their big bugaboo. I mean, to me, I, I don't think they actually have been any worse than would have been thought. I picked them to go a little bit under the 49 games Vegas line, but that was more health related because their bench is still pretty bad. And as everyone knows, they had the starters play 80 of the 82 games last year. So I think that regression is more coming. I wouldn't really be particularly disappointed in their performance so far. Uh, I think it's kind of about right where people would have expected. Yeah, I guess the one that lingered with me was them losing to Sacramento, but I think Sacramento has looked a lot better. You know, they, that was, I think, early on in their surprising runs, so, and they gave up 40 to Rudy. So I think, for me, that one is the one that stuck in my craw, but I can understand why that isn't particularly egregious, especially now. Well, and if you think about it, too, home teams win two-thirds of their games in the NBA. And if you have a team like Sacramento that's, you know, even if you're considering them as like a 30 win team, and then you have a 50-win team playing on the road against a 30-win team, that's about a toss-up game, frankly, with the way home court advantage works in the NBA. That's a great point. We'll move on to, to me, one of the surprisingly positives has been a couple of the young teams, to me, have looked closer to relevance, I guess is the best way to put it, than I expected. And the two that stick out to me so far have been Orlando and Utah. I'm not saying they're there yet. Oh, Milwaukee could also be in there. I'm not saying they're there yet. They're just closer than I thought they would be this early in the season. I actually like Milwaukee, the best of those teams, as the one with the greatest potential to really be a threat to make the playoffs. I, I don't know that I would predict that, but their defense has been excellent. They've been a top five defense, at least the last time I looked, which was a couple of days ago. Larry Sanders being back obviously helps. I think Jason Kidd is an upgrade at coach. They have some pretty decent athletes now on the wings, and I think uh, the offense, as Jabari gets a little more comfortable, O.J. Mayo also is like actually in shape, and he's, you know, there's a reason he got an eight million dollar a year contract uh, before he got out of shape. So yeah, I think that they're actually a team that could realistically sniff 500 this year. I don't really feel that way about uh, Utah and Orlando necessarily. What do you th- what do you think about the Bucks so far? 
I've really liked what I've seen from them. I think that you brought up a good point that the defense has been a huge step. I just looked it up in their fourth in defensive efficiency right now. And while that might be a little bit high, they've looked good defensively. And I feel like Kidd is getting a, a better sense of the talent that they have. I, I like the way that they've fiddled around with Giannis and given him some responsibilities. And I, your OJ Mayo has done that. And what it makes me think about is I like to think about of when assessing how a team's going to do in the following season, I like to assess not only how they did, but whether that was representative. And I felt like last season, everything went wrong. Yeah. And so some regression to the mean in that sense, from the terrible to the not terrible, plus an upgrade in talent and an upgrade at coach can lead to a team being feisty in the East because the East still isn't that good. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good point. I mean, a couple of worrying things for the Bucks more in the long-term sense. Chris Middleton had a DNP the other night, and Jared Dudley is playing over him, which is a little concerning. And then also, I from I haven't caught a Bucks game in their last couple, but from what I see on Twitter, uh, Jabari is now starting at the three. I really think that his long-term position needs to be the four. He can rebound well enough for it, and he can just abuse guys so well off the dribble from that four spot that I worry that he's going to get locked into playing the three. And we've seen guys of that ilk. He's much better than guys like Beasley and, and has a lot more ball skills and, you know, got someone like Derek Williams, but those kind of tweener guys, when they play the three, I find that they lose a lot of what could theoretically make them special. So that's a little bit of a concern going forward with them, but uh, overall their performance has been very positive. If you were a coach and a team trotted out Giannis and Jabari as the second and third tallest guys, so let's say Larry, Giannis, and, and Jabari Parker, wouldn't you just feel comfortable putting your power forward on Giannis and just putting your three on Jabari anyway? I feel like that's the problem with that pairing as much as I like it. Yeah, although Giannis is going to get to the point where he can be a good standstill three-point shooter and hopefully aggressive enough where he can blow by a guy you know, a four man who's closing out on him. If you're going to guard him with the four, I think ultimately once those guys get a little more experience, both get a little more comfortable with the NBA three point line. I think they will be a very nice combination, especially if Giannis can get to the point where he's running pick and roll. Jabari Parker also got a bad rap as someone who didn't really pass at Duke, but in high school, he was someone who was known as a pretty good passer and he's got a nice eye on occasion. He's someone who will be able to work and pick and roll as well. So if your three-man and your four-man can both handle the ball and pick and roll, that is what could be quite a weapon in time. So what do you like about Orlando? That's my question because I really, I don't really see it with that team to be honest. Aaron Gordon is has shown that he can play, that he can impact a game like I hoped he would a little bit. There was the overtime against against Minnesota. Obviously, there were a whole bunch of other factors in that game, like Ricky Rubio going out, and it looks like now he's going to be out for a while, maybe two months. That. He was able to do more, and I feel like his offensive game is a little bit further along than I thought it would be. Not necessarily the shooting, but just the overall game. And I like Peyton. I feel like if he can, a year or two from now, have more faith in his jump shot, I feel like he could be a very useful player on a good team. And so to me, when you look at a team like that, you're looking for those flashes. You're looking for the guys that will grow into those spots. The challenge with them is that I still have absolutely no idea what to, what they should do with guys like Tobias Harris and Mo Harkless, and those are the guys they actually have to make decisions on in the near term. Yeah, this is my problem with Orlando, right? The three biggest things that you need as a team to succeed 
at a championship level. Number one is guys just who can score, who can create efficient offense for themselves and for others. Another one is somebody who can protect the rim. And then you need shooters. So in a long-term sense with Orlando, who are those guys on this roster right now who could conceivably grow into those three roles and make this a championship contender on this roster right now? Yeah, I agree with you. That's why I was really critical of the Aaron Gordon pick in the first place. I wanted XM, XM over him. And I, I hope that Peyton can get there. I'm not entirely sure that he can. But the rim protector is a huge issue. Vucevic has many gifts. He reminds me a lot of, I heard today the broadcasters of that game referred to Nikola Pekovic as his mentor, which I had not heard before. But I thought that was interesting because it's getting to the point where I have basically the same criticism of both of them, which is that they're very good, but they lack the thing that their position needs to do to make a team competitive. Yeah, and scoring centers are great, but it, you know it helps. I wouldn't. I would rather have a scoring center than a non-scoring center. But the fact is you can get scoring from other areas on your roster, but you can't get someone to protect the rim on other areas of your roster. So, you know, Vucevic is someone they've now committed to long-term. I mean, I do think that Gordon, if he's playing the four, could be versatile enough where he can be a plus defender, and then they've got Oladipo and Peyton outside. So maybe they can still have a, a good defense. With even though Vucevic has his limitations at the basket, but yeah, I mean, there's no, they're not, they don't have an elite rim protector on on the roster. I mean, unless you're going to say it's Kyle O'Quinn, who's someone who's intriguing, but I think is far enough away that you can't really count on him for as a, any major part of the future. And then shooting, you know, no, Channing Fry is not going to be a part of the next great Magic team. You're playing Peyton Oladipo and Gordon together, like that's not going to work. Uh, you're not going to have the spacing. And then there's nobody who's really an elite offensive talent. I mean, unless you're going to count Tobias Harris as that, and he's more sort of a nice, you know, scoring small forward type of piece, but not he's not going to be a dominant player, I don't think. So, you know, what what's the plan here? I just I don't quite understand it. And, you know, even if they can find a way to play well in the short term, sort of colored by the fact that I don't think that there's really that much upside long term without some major surgery on this roster that still remains to be done. I agree with you on the three points and your assessment. And the thing that I would add in there is as well, as much as I like Aaron Gordon and Oladipo in the right system, in the right role, they also don't have that real swingman stopper because unless you feel comfortable putting Oladipo on three, oh, Gordon, Gordon could be that guy. I think you, so you think that maybe so he'll handle the bigger wings and Oladipo would handle the smaller wings. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I guess the only problem is if you want to play, see, then, then your problem is though, all right, are you playing Aaron Gordon at the four, and then he's still going to guard the other team's best wing, then who guards the other team's four? And if you're playing Aaron Gordon at the three, he's not a good enough offensive player to play the three. Uh, certainly not now. And, I mean, he, both he and Peyton, you could say, oh, they'll become better shooters. Peyton doesn't even pretend to think about shooting a three. He Even a wide-open, like, 17-footer, he will, like, think about for about five seconds. And he's been pretty broke at the free-throw line his whole career. So you can't project necessarily that he's going to get a lot better. Usually guys who become better shooters at least show some potential at the line, and Gordon has the same issue, uh, although he at least can make a standstill three if he gets an hour to, to get it off. But, yeah, it, I don't know. I mean, it's probably too much to talk about the Magic. We've got some other stuff to get to. But, I, you know, I, I'm not – although all those pieces are kind of nice individually, I'm not sure in the aggregate that they add up to much. 
Yeah, I agree. The other team, since we'll we'll hit all three in one shot that that I kind of led into was Utah. I, I think we've both been impressed by how particularly Dante Exum has played this early because we I think we both expected him to be very very rough at the start of his career as a teenager who basically hadn't played anybody other than FIBA. Yeah, I did. I, I thought. Although I, I really liked him, he was number two on my personal board. I think he has great tools, uh, both physically and with his vision. I didn't think he would be quite to the point that he is shooting the three right now. He's been very effective with that. It's a small sample. Maybe that'll regress a little bit, but he works hard on that. Uh, he's shown really good vision. And his defense has not been like a complete abomination. He's been protected in his matchups going against bench guys, but he was more effective today. He actually closed the game for the first time over Trey Burke uh, against the Pistons as the Jazz had a nice uh, come-from-behind victory. And, and Quinn Snyder said, yeah, I really liked what his length was doing on defense. And he's really flashed with some nice steals and blocks out in the perimeter. And he's getting into better shape, better cardio shape, which is a big thing for him also. So, yeah, I'm very encouraged by his start. Gordon Hayward is playing much better. This is a Jazz team that uh, up until today, they'll probably go down a little bit after this Pistons game. They're number two in offense. That's very encouraging because I think being good at offense is a lot harder than being good at defense. And if you can, you have a good offensive team, especially with some of the talent that they have there, I think they can get there defensively. Yeah, I, I definitely think that they can too. And the other thing that struck me about Exum is that I'm seeing the parts of his game that made me so high on him as potentially being a guy who could play on or off the ball. His shot has been much better than I thought it would be this early. But one of the things that I loved about him when I watched the grainy high school footage of him and in FIBA was that when he drives or when he when he moves, he's looking for passes. He's had a couple nice alley-oops to Joubert, and he's looking for that sort of thing. And when you're dealing with a young guy who can still get to places on the floor, you want the head up, you want him looking around, because that's what shows that he can be create for others rather than just for himself. Well, really, we we haven't talked enough about Gordon Hayward and Derek Favors. Those guys, have, it seems like they've been there forever. Both were guys who we could say probably didn't really fulfill expectations last year when there's hope that the Jazz could maybe do a little better than they did. And, and neither of those guys really was much better than they had been. And maybe it was even a little worse than they had been on a permanent basis in smaller roles previously. This year, they are both really starting to fill it up. Gordon Hayward is getting to the basket. He throws these great hook passes for threes to the weak side. He's drilling his mid-range jumper like he did over LeBron James the other day. And he had some big mid-rangers going down the stretch when he scored the Jazz the last 11 points against Detroit today. And Favors has uh, shown some aptitude for posting up. He's making nice plays on short rolls going to the basket, whether it's Quinn Snyder's system or the work that they have both put in on their individual games. There's a lot more space on the floor, and those guys are really taking advantage of it. Yeah, I think that's very important. And the reason that Utah, their future looks brighter than I would say I would have anticipated two weeks ago is those guys primarily. As as important as Exum is and as much as I love Rudy Gerberas and I always will, those guys have really grown into what could be bigger roles on a good team. And Hayward was a guy who I always thought he would be better as a really good player on a great team, and it feels like the talent around him is getting closer to that. They're not there yet, obviously, but he does such a nice job setting up teammates, and he's and he gets it for himself, too. I really like him as a 
kind of a an offensive force at the at the three position, not obviously at the level of a Duran or LeBron, obviously, but the next kind of the next level down as just the guy who makes sure that everything is working. Yeah, and he's he was a good enough player today that he the Pistons don't really have a wing stopper. They were rolling with Karan Butler at the three. And Gordon Hayward dominated Karan Butler. And while Karan Butler is by no means a great wing defender, there are a lot of teams, like the Clippers, that don't have a great wing defender. And Gordon Hayward is getting to the point now, it looks like, where he can really take advantage of those matchups. And the last thing I'll say on Utah is also, I like that they they have a bench unit right now, obviously their rotations could change, that does a nice job of putting pressure on and sometimes gaining an advantage on their opposition. I think that they could strike a better balance. We saw Booker close the game out today. I think that makes a lot of sense considering I haven't seen much from cancer so far this year, but they have that. So even if the starters stumble a little bit, they're not getting killed by their, by their lack of depth, like a lot of other teams around their level of talent. And I thought that was actually going to be a killer for them. I thought Exum wasn't going to be ready. I thought Rodney Hood was going to be a disaster on defense. And granted the Jazz have been pretty bad on defense, but a, a lot of that is, three real rough matchups, two with Dallas and one with Houston so far, where they've just gotten completely torched. Uh, but those guys have been good so far. And I think with the with those guys and the starters, they're a team that I w- don't think they're going to make the playoffs, but they could get into the, you know, into the 30s and wins and be a team that has a bright future. We didn't talk at all, and we sh- briefly should mention Trey Burke not having that great of a start to the season. Alec Burks is looking a little bit better. He's shooting pretty well on threes, and he's another guy who can get to the basket. And with he and Hayward, you have two threats on the wings that the other team needs to guard. And that's, uh, you know, not a lot. lot, Most teams are going to have one guy who is not a good player uh, defensively on the wing, and so one of those guys is going to have a favorable matchup. They also use the flexibility with Burks and Exum today against Detroit, where they had Burks mostly guarding Jennings down the stretch, and I thought that was an interesting move by Snyder that shows his confidence in Burks as a defender. Yeah, Burks is good on ball. His problem is off ball. But yeah, all right, that's probably probably enough Utah talk. We really we probably need to talk about the Cavs. I mean, they haven't played. Yeah. they haven't played in a couple of days, and they looked a little bit better against Denver. Uh, what do you think about this team? Do you think that they are still the favorites in the East? Or do you feel worse about them as a championship contender? What are your thoughts? Can I say yes to both of those things? I still think they're the favorites in the East, but I have a lot less faith in them because the the concept for me with them, barring some sort of improvement like they can pull a healthy Emeka Okafor out of, out, of, out of their hat later on in the year, I've always thought that their path to a championship was being so dominant offensively that they could have an average defense and survive. And what I'm concerned about with them is that supreme offense seems a little bit farther away than I thought it would be. That's not saying it's impossible. That's not saying they're not going to do it. But it's farther away, and it's a more distant concept. So that makes me far more concerned both in the East and for a potential title. Yeah, I think I would still have them as the favorites, especially because the the Bulls have kind of had their own pains, uh, especially with Joakim Noah's not looking like the same player that he was last year, and we don't know what kind of surgery he really had. That's a little bit of a concern. But yeah, I thought they were going to just be killing teams out of the gate. 
on offense, just the way they were in the preseason. And they haven't really been doing that. I think even, even in that Denver game, they weren't that amazing. And we thought that they were going to be impossible to guard with, with love and, and LeBron. And I think, you know, a, a fair amount of their struggles, there's been talk about the lack of ball movement and the pieces not fitting together. I think a lot of it too has just been that love and LeBron individually are not necessarily playing that well. Here's a question. I mean, are you concerned at all about LeBron being potentially not as good as he was? I mean, you know, he's going to be a little older, so you'd expect a slight decline, but do you think he might be significantly worse than we've seen in the last couple of years based on what you've seen early on this season? I'm very concerned by it. You and I have talked offline and probably on the podcast about the idea of physical primes, and LeBron is clearly past his physical prime. That doesn't mean he's bad. That doesn't mean anything like that. And from my experience watching the league, what's hard to assess sometimes is you know a guy's probably going to drop off in terms of his physical ability, but how much depends a lot on the player. So while I think he is better than he has been, it has made me less confident that he can become what he was last year. And the other part of it, and Haberstroh wrote about this, and a lot of other people have done that in the last two years, is his defense wasn't nearly as good last year as it had been earlier in the Miami run when he had been such a huge factor on that end. And there was an open question about whether that was an aberration or whether maybe that was a move or maybe it was partially some of that. Maybe there was some improvement going back to the mean, but that he wouldn't get all the way there. And, the defensive end is where he kind of needed to be the glue for this team, especially with what it looks like their front line is going to be. And if he can't get back on that end, I think that's a lot more devastating than his role on the offense. Yeah, I agree on most of that. And, you know, that was a question that I had asked myself as well. And sort of privately, I didn't think there was enough information yet to make my prediction, but I sort of thought, all right, my prediction is that, yeah, last year was real. And if he could have turned it on, he would have. So, you know, I thought this is going to be, we might have seen, for the most part, the end of LeBron as like a huge destructive defensive force as he nears the age of 30. And now with this year starting and, you know, there was the weight loss, maybe that was going to help him. But, you know, the evidence continues to pile up. And as it does so, it becomes less and less likely that he's going to get back to being that level of a force on defense. If you were Cleveland, would you consider any moves other than adding somebody who comes in off the scrap heap, or would you consider anything bigger right now? I don't think I would touch those three guys, especially with Kyrie. You would have an issue trading him because of the vestiges of the old base year compensation rule, where the average of this year and then his projected five-year max extension would be his salary. So you'd uh, for trade purposes, so that could complicate things. Also, I mean, I think I I would wait it out. Certainly, I mean, this is a team that was put together with some great things in mind. I'm sure that there were, you know, this is all part of a big plan, and and obviously giving up on that doesn't seem like the greatest idea. I do really wonder what they were doing extending Barajao when they did, though. For ten million a year, I think. What is that? Is that two years and then the third year non guaranteed? Is that what that is? The extension. That's what I've read. Yes, that's what I've read. I think the year before it is another one of those hilarious partial guarantees where it's partially guaranteed at a really high proportion of the salary. So basically, you're not you're not going to let him go for that unless something horrible happens. So it's really only like a one year actual like guaranteed. 
No, it's functionally it's oh, two, oh, from what okay. I understand. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's that, yeah. yeah. It's like like 80% guaranteed or something like that. Yeah, yeah it's, I think it's full something in the 80-90 range and then unguaranteed. Well, in any event, that really impacts their flexibility. I mean, he's a guy who has played up and up until last year, he had played, you know, like under 50 games, I think the three preceding years before that. And we also don't even know how effective he is. I, I mean, I'm not even sure he's the starter at center over Tristan Thompson. He hasn't really been closing games necessarily. I definitely struggle to believe that he was going to go anywhere. He would have turned that contract down if they offered it to him this summer. And it could be that he's, you know, not going to be, he's 32 do you need to get him locked up for 33 and 34 at 10 million a year? I know the cap's going up, but I mean, that's still starter money. And I'm not sure that he is a starter at this point for a team that, you know, Kevin Love could leave still. I mean, I'm not predicting that, but if things don't go very well, if they get smacked in the Eastern Conference Finals or something this year, maybe he leaves. And then you're going to really wish you weren't paying Anderson Verjao 10 million a year. So I, that was a somewhat curious move. At least they didn't compound that error by also extending Thompson, which would have killed their flexibility even more. At least they're going to wait and see on him. Yeah, agreed on all counts. What I wanted to see to a point from the Cavs was the idea of basically ruthlessly going after the best possible team. And the idea being that they have this special opportunity, like all the other teams in the league, that whether the smoothing happens or not, the cap is going to go up faster than it ever has before. And so that gives teams that are would have their flexibility be very limited under the current system and the current revenue streams. They'll give them an opportunity to add a piece. I think the Wizards are a great example of this, that they're a benefit from that. I wanted the Cavs to be one of those teams to say, we're just going to do that. We're going to go after whatever we can. And it feels now like they're going to do Verjao, Tristan Thompson, and then they'll probably try to trade Haywood's contract next summer for a, a piece you know, kind of that a guy who's a little bit overpaid, but that is still a useful player for them and that they'll roll with that and the and obviously the other guys. And while that'll be fine, you know, that's not that's not optimizing to me. And that's a little bit concerning. So what about their defense? Can they get this defense to where they could conceivably win a championship? Yeah, I think they can. But get, winning a championship with the offense being at the level that I thought it was going to be, if the offense isn't Let's say if it isn't top five, I don't think their defense is going to be good enough to keep them in it. But I have the full expectation their offense will will get to at least that level in the next four months. Yeah, to me, I'm a little concerned with their scheme. They've got Kevin Love really hard hedging way out on the floor, but and, and but they're not really even trapping; they're just hedging, and not a lot of teams run that. I don't think that. I mean, maybe they'll get better at it. But it sort of is just, you know, it's basically to make the ball handler take a wider arc as he drives to the basket. But they're letting, on side pick and rolls, they're letting guys just get right to the middle of the floor. And then they can make passes to the weak side very easily. And Kyrie is not a guy who is amazing at getting over picks. So when Love hedges, Kyrie, it's the idea is that you hedge, force the guy to take a wider arc, and then the guy guarding the ball handler can get back in front of him because he's had to take that wider arc. Well, Kyrie, as or Dion Waiters, whoever's guarding at the point of attack, is not really good enough to get back in front of him even after the hedge. So there have been a lot of times where guys are just driving to the middle on pick and rolls very easily, 
And so I don't know. I mean, schematically, you know, having the, having Kevin Love or someone hang back, maybe that works. Although, again, the trouble getting over the screen is a problem because you're going to give up a lot of mid-rangers. But maybe that's what just, just they have to settle with, kind of in the way that the Suns used to. They They would just focus on not fouling, staying in front of your guy, and, you know, if we're going to give up an open mid-range two because we're not pressuring up enough, so be it. If they can get the offense humming, I think that a little more conservative scheme where you're just forcing the other team to make a play and beat you instead of, you know, letting them get easy stuff, it would be something that would work a little bit better for them. And that also makes sense considering they have a, a good group of defensive rebounders, that if the idea yeah, is that you're going to try point. to do something like that, that works better with that. And the other component of that is that they have a lot of defenders that can get lost on the weak side. And so then they, maybe they're helping or whatever. And then they, and so they're, they're getting better looks once they get into the middle of the floor because somebody else is screwed up. Cause I, I mean, and the, the thing that's been lingering with me with this team for a while is, I just don't think Deion Waiters makes any sense with this team because he functions best with the ball in his hands, and that's fine. You know, there are guys who can do that. Yeah, but yeah, or, depending or he on how he functions best with the ball in his hands. He yeah. actually he's actually great on catch and shoots, but he had a quote the other day saying, you know, that's not my game. So, you know, I mean, yeah. we've known that since his rookie year. He's always been very good on catch and shoot. And you have the other three guys who are all very good offensive players. And to me, when you're thinking about a 48-minute strategy, my concept would be to have at least two of the three on the floor at all times. And if you're doing that, then you're never giving Dion Waiters that reign. And you shouldn't, because if Dion's getting that, it's not your best offense. You can do better than Dion Waiters if you're, if you're Cleveland. If you're other teams, that might not be true. So I was thinking about that, and then the other thing, just to pour salt in the wound, I was thinking about how nice it would be if this team had Nerlens Noel, <laughs> which they absolutely could have had, and that would have solved a lot of their problems. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how ready Noel is, and I also I really worry about his health. He takes some really awkward falls. He's also been getting like a lot of ankle sprains even since he, since he came back, and he's he doesn't quite have the heft right now to play center in the NBA, and he's clearly... He, I don't think he's ever going to have the skill to make shots outside of about 10 feet or so. So, you know, I, I don't think he would be a panacea, at least at this point, long-term. I still like him if he can stay healthy, but I don't know that he's really, you know, a plus player quite yet at this point in his career. That, that's definitely a fair point. One of the teams that I've been thinking about, I think you've watched a little bit of them, I definitely have, is the Kings. I'm very happy for them. I'm happy that they've done so well, but... I haven't seen much from them other than Cousins being better than he was last year to make me think that they're closer to where they are now than where they were last year. Well, I, the defense has been good. I think that's really what they've been building it on. Rudy Gay has been shooting at an unsustainable rate from the mid-range. That's going to regress. You know, I mean, even his, that great 40-point game he had, a lot of that was built on some pretty tough shots. From what I read, I haven't seen too, uh, too much of this yet, but Ben McLemore has been a lot better defensively. I think they, they've been happy with that. So at least they have someone who's not just like a sieve on, on the wing. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, they've banked, what are they, 5-2 and two now? So they've banked some wins. Maybe they can get to, to 500 if this defense keeps up. Uh, and Cousins has been better defensively, I think. And, and that kind of started with Team USA. A lot of those guys are having really good years, as they often seem to, coming back from USA basketball. But, yeah, I mean, I think they're certainly due to regress. But 
based on what we've seen, I mean, I don't recall them ever having a stretch this good, especially defensively last year. So I, I would revise the prediction upwards a bit for them, hopefully for Chicago fans, just good enough to give up that top 10 protected draft pick this year. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think that, that that's a factor. I wrote a piece earlier in the year about how yeah, that was pick protection ma- Thank you. How pick protection matters, and that was one that really stuck out because there was a disparity between where they wanted to be and what made the most sense for that pick. And we might see a really ridiculous Warriors-style situation from them. But the, what I, I, think, I keep I on... I think Vivek might have too much pride for that. He might. But Vivek was, I think Vivek was involved with the Warriors, obviously not in a leadership capacity when the Warriors did that. So he's definitely seen how it can work. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully they don't take Harrison Barnes over Drummond, but that's a separate issue. But the interesting factor for me with Sacramento is I feel like what makes the most sense for them is to trade Rudy Gay to somebody silly enough to think that this is who he is, but I don't think they're cold enough to do it. Well, who, nobody's going to give up a lot for him. He's going to be a free agent. I feel like somebody might. But that's, uh, granted, the team I immediately thought of was Brooklyn, but I don't really know who they would give up. Yeah, or, or, I mean, they don't have any draft assets, obviously. I mean, the Clippers are a team that could really, really use Rudy Gay, actually, just to have someone on the wing, even though he's not he's not the greatest fit in the world, but he's someone who could at least in, like, physically defend his position and hit some shots and get out and transition. Uh, but they have nothing to give back either. And, no, I don't think – I mean, the Kings uh, convinced him to opt into that big option this year. Uh, so, I mean, I think he's part of the long-term plan there, for better or for worse. I mean, I do uh, shudder to think of what kind of contract extension he might get, especially if, you know, the Kings have a big, quote-unquote, improvement this year and sort of sniff around the edges of the playoff race. And then, you know, it'll be like that one season in New York when, you know, they came close to the eighth seed and then Isaiah Thomas got five more years and everyone else, you know, we got to bring back this group. They're all improving. And, you know, that includes your – 30-year-old small forward that you're now going to pay $15 million a year to for the next three years. That That's uh, that's a concern, but I mean, I guess even that is a good problem for the Kings compared with the straights they've been in in recent years. Yeah, and the other big factor there is the new arena that they're building, and that I can, see, I can already see the narrative in their head, and I can already hear Rudy's agent in the room saying, you have to keep him. He was such a big part in this year. This was a big success, and them just throwing a, a comically large number at him to to make him stay and I, I think that's that's enough on the Kings for right now you're a Chicago native I was intrigued because I have my own thoughts on the Bulls but I wanted you to talk first on it I think their offensive start is extremely encouraging my initial worry was that the offense still wasn't going to be good enough in, in preseason because I didn't like the way that they were rotating guys in I didn't think that knowing Gasol was going to work very well offensively because those guys are both kind of centers and Noah it's not really spacing doesn't really space the floor very well as a power forward but no it's gone pretty well so far I mean I haven't looked at what their numbers are with Noah in the game and he hasn't played that much Rose has been out but I mean if you look at the, the way the individual components are playing for Chicago I think you actually should be encouraged despite the fact that they have been so miserable on defense and the boards at least you know for a Thibodeau team Pau Gasol has been pretty decent with his post-ups. Not a place I would want to go all the time against really good defense, but 
he's someone who could definitely take advantage, especially against backup bigs. Jimmy Butler has been awesome. He's been scoring over 15 points a game since he came back from his injury. He's getting to the basket, been very, very efficient this year. He looks like a completely different player, handling the ball and pick and rolls. He's going by guys out of jab steps, posting up. Hasn't been shooting the three that much, but at least has made the few that he's taken. McDermott and Miritich have struggled the last couple of games, or at least the team has struggled, but they themselves have looked you know, like they can be very good offensive players. Aaron Brooks is going to regress a little bit, but he's been the latest Thibodeau Mighty Might, who has been great. And uh, and even Derek Rose, although he's been out with the ankle sprain, he looked at least for a quarter and a half in that Cavs game like an absolutely dominant player. And I think as soon as he his ankles heal up, uh, there's no reason to think he won't get back to that until, unfortunately, he may suffer the next injury. You hit on a lot of huge things for me with them. I've liked just about all of their pieces better than I expected, or the same. You know, obviously, Taj Gibson is what he is. Yeah, well, he, you know, I, well I mean, I, I would say even he has exceeded expectations so far. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I, I've liked what I've seen offensively. from – Offensively. Offensively, yeah. I've liked what I've seen from Miritich and McDermott on the aggregate, not in terms of necessarily what they've done, but what I see them becoming. My concern with them, as it has always been, is – not how they are at 100%. I think them at 100% are the favorites in the East, and I also think they're the team in the East that would have the best chance of beating a Western Conference champion. But I'm terrified of what they are without Rose because Aaron Brooks has played great. He's he's not Aaron Brooks. And the the just the challenge with them is just how likely it's – Arturo Galetti talks about this with the Warriors all the time, but I think the Bulls are more for one, is how likely are they to start the playoffs at 100%. Yeah, I, I actually, I still think the Cavs are the favorites, just because I, I maybe that's just like Chicago homerism and pessimism because I just don't want to be hurt again. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, I think just the Cavs, that Cavs team just has so much talent on it. I mean, they're they're a more talented team than the Bulls. They have more top end talent than the Bulls. I think they, until we really find out more about them, I mean, you know. If, the, if that Cavs team has two really awesome games on offense, you're, we're going to be wondering what we thought the problem was. Like they're, It's going to take a lot more to convince me that they are not going to be a great offensive team with the talent they have. So they're the favorites. But, yeah, I think you know a lot of it's health with Chicago. And, I mean, I think they are going to struggle on the defensive glass. Gasol is pretty bad as a center. Noah, as we said, is not – quite himself. Gibson is only average on the defensive boards. Miritich is pretty horrendous for a power forward, and especially if Thibs is going to be playing Miritich and Taj Gibson together, that's probably going to be an ongoing issue for them too, especially against the Cavs who are, you know, have the potential to be an awesome offensive rebounding team. It's a great point. Yeah, I, I think that you and I talked before the season, and I, I was convinced that at some point in the year there was going to be more Miritich, Noah, and Gibson, Gasol, because it just made sense, but we really haven't seen it so far. Yeah, that's actually, I mean, one of Thibs' biggest weaknesses, and, you know, I, I, I'm largely a Thibs supporter. I think he's worth, you know, five to ten wins a year. I mean, what he did with that team last year, getting them to 48 wins was, was unbelievable. I mean, if it, I, I made the point today what do you think is is a more talented team? That team that the Thunder trotted out today with Reggie Jackson and Serge Ibaka, but no KD and Westbrook, or that Bulls team from last year? I'd say those teams are about equally talented. Nobody is saying that that's a 48-win team 
with the Thunder, and that's a team that Thibs dragged to 48 wins last year. So I, I, I like him a lot, but I think he can be very, very rigid in his rotations. I think that really cost him against Washington when he was using uh, Heinrich and, and Boozer in very bad matchups for them. So and insisting on starting them when they worked much better against the Wizards backups. So I'm not that optimistic about his mix and match ability when this is a roster that has a lot of pieces that can be deployed selectively in the right matchups. I had never thought about this until you said it, but the other guy that a lot of what you said I think about is Doc Rivers. Uh, Doc is a guy who I think is a a, a good coach and good talent. I don't think he's the tactician, honestly, in my opinion, that Thibodeau is. But the same stubbornness is a very interesting thing, considering their background together. Yeah, no, maybe that's true. Well, so, all right, I mean, I guess we should get to the local team, huh? If the season ended today, is Stephen Curry the MVP? Oh, I don't know. Probably just because of, like, you know, the Warriors have theoretically been the best team, although they kind of melted down today against Phoenix. I don't know. What do you think? I think so. It's also been a very different, if you were to theoretically make this six slash seven game season, obviously we haven't seen anywhere near what we hope is the best LeBron. Anthony Davis has played great. I think he's another guy who's in there and it it, it would be, it would be the best in a weak field, I guess would be the way to put it because Durant's been hurt obviously, but he's been great. And the team is at a different level to me, in terms of the way that they're playing than I saw last year. And some of that is Kerr. Some of that is, I think they have talent. The the changes that they made make more sense together. And for me, as somebody who is a detractor, you could call it, of David Lee, I think that seeing Draymond with the starters more, especially at the power forward position, has helped them a lot in most of their games. I want to pump the brakes on the Warriors a little bit. I'm not convinced that they're that much better of an offensive team than they were last year yet. Um, That's fair. And, you know, people are going nuts. Clay had 41 points against the Lakers. Granted, that's against the Lakers. He's been getting to the rim a little bit more. He's a little bit better of a player. You know, I think we, we can we can assume he's not quite as good as he's looked so far, but, you know, certainly better than last year. He's going to be more efficient. Maybe shoot a higher percentage. Uh, you know, a lot of the off-ball movement is helping him. I, think I, I can get on board with that. Andre Iguodala is going to be a worse offensive player this year. David Lee is going to be a worse offensive player this year if he ever even makes it onto the court. Andrew Bogut is going to be a worse offensive player this year, probably. I mean, but at least in terms of his scoring, he's he's been good facilitating things. But you know, he's not he's probably not going to get as many offensive rebounds this year, and he's not going to finish at the rim quite as well. He's you know he looks a little bit less less explosive, especially offensively. So. I think those and Steph will probably be a little better. I think that all that kind of cancels out. The new offense is great. Maybe uh, that will be something that lifts these guys to higher heights. Maybe Draymond Green is going to keep shooting threes as well as he has. But so far this year, they have struggled like crazy with Steph Curry out of the game, just like they did last year. They really have. And a big challenge for them that we saw a lot tonight because Clay Thompson was out is that they don't have guys who can really get their own points other than Stephen Curry. And to a point, Clay Thompson now, I think he's done better at that this year. And that's a major concern because when you get down to the playoffs, especially if you look at the teams that are going to be in the hunt in the West, a lot of them can put somebody on Curry 
to make it that it'll be harder for him to create either for himself or for others. And the challenge last year, part of the reason they lost to the Clippers was that they didn't have that second option. And while Clay could get there, and I think he's closer than he was, the challenge with them isn't as much the two, it's the three and the four, because they have guys there that are good players, good all-around players, but it'll be a challenge for them at certain points to get the offense moving. And that's actually why David Lee makes sense with the second unit, if he can get on the floor. He can help keep them afloat there. But in crunch time, I think they'll defend really well. I, I love this this team that way. But the offense, if you take Curry and get his, his a bad game from him, they're going to be very beatable. Yeah, and now when I say pump the brakes, I do think they're going to be better. And, and also, we haven't had injuries to any of the major pieces yet too which is which is the other issue but but i mean we'll, we'll talk about them as they are right now and there are some reasons for optimism number one is with draymond green in the starting lineup i mean this could be a historically good defense uh they can switch everything one through four bogut is is walling off the middle now they have a backup center in azili who's pretty hopeless offensively but He's almost as good as Bogut is defensively, so he, he's been excellent defending the basket. Sean Livingston is another very good, long defensive player who can come in off the bench. Barnes is looking more intense. Curry is doing a better job defensively this year as well. And now if you know they keep winning and Draymond remains in the starting lineup, then that's really going to help the defense a lot. And then hopefully Lee can come in and do a little better with the second unit and help them get some scoring. So I think, I think they could, they're probably the favorite to be the number one defense this year, which is crazy considering they're also playing at the league's fastest pace right now. Uh, that's a pretty rarely seen combination. And, you know, maybe the offense, which was 12th last year, maybe they can get to ninth or something. You know, I, I don't know that they're going to be a top five offense by any means, but I think if they can get into the top 10 and they're the number one defense, by quite a bit, which is looking like how it's going to be so far. Uh, yeah, then they are championship contender, health permitting. Yeah, health permitting. I, the thing that I was thinking about, obviously they whooped the Clippers and led to that amazing Doc Rivers post game. that if any of you guys haven't listened to it, you should listen to, that I think that if both teams are at full strength, I, I have very little doubt that the, Cl- the Clippers would lose to the Warriors in a seven-game series. Obviously, we don't know what these, what these whether they're going to get to full strength, but one of the things that I really like about this team is that other than that issue with scoring that I talked about, their defense will travel well, and I, I feel like they're going to be a really tough out because they'll use these remaining 75, 75 games or so to figure out who should close for them and to figure out all these other things, and that's a very important piece because it felt like they never figured all that out last year. Yeah, I, and, and like I'm very impressed with what Kerr and his staff have done. I mean, I, I don't mean to poo-poo that. I think you know people were just going a little bit nuts here, uh, like what Thompson was going to be, you know, after a couple of marquee games early on. But yeah, I think I like what the staff has done. I like that Steve Kerr is willing to experiment. I think that he is definitely pushing the right button so far, or at least trying to figure out what the right push and buttons are to push. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely true. And I hope, hope, hope that he has the support of ownership and he's in the honeymoon period enough that he can do what he thinks is best for 
the lineup and all that moving forward, that he doesn't have to kowtow like alleged he may have happened under previous administrations to having certain popular players play pivotal minutes. <laughs> yeah, i.e. David Lee going off the bench. Uh, yes. Let's do like the top two tiers in the league right now. Who, who do you have, or at least the top tier of championship contenders, who do you have in the top tier of championship contenders, You know, assuming everyone is healthy right now or, or by the end of the year? So I'm going to cheat and do three because my first tier is just the Spurs. I feel like they're better. I feel like they're if you if you're counting them at full strength, they're still there. Then the next group, I would say right now is probably it's a big group right now. Yep. Chicago, Cleveland, Houston, the Warriors. I mean, Oklahoma City is really hard to figure out. I'm not completely sure. I actually don't. If I had to put money on it right now, I would say they're not going to make the playoffs, oh, which is no. ludicrous I, to say. Do you say. want to make that bet? I would love to make no, that No, no, I don't want to. I think they're going to make the playoffs. Because, uh, like, I think they're going to play better during this period when those two guys are out than people think they're going to. I think their home crowd has been excellent for them. They're playing hard. They're playing great D. And, you know, Brooks is changing up. They're playing this 2-3 uh, zone now that is kind of flummoxed teams. A little bit, and there's no reason why they were a real good defensive team last year. And I don't think there's that much reason. Durant's a good defender, but I don't think he's a total game changer. I don't think there's that much reason why they can't still be an elite defense. They're going to really struggle offensively, but I think they can win, you know, a third of their games, 40% of their games, uh, until those guys, at least one of those guys, comes back. Yeah, if they're at 40% when they get the first one back, I think they're okay. I'm just, I'm a little concerned that teams are just going to figure them out because I don't have much faith in most of their guys breaking down defenses. Reggie did a nice job tonight. Serge is is looking good offensively. He's looking better than I actually expected he would, which props to him. But yeah, I think, but so let's say, let's say they make the playoffs. I think there's, if they're at full strength, they're definitely tier two. And then... I'm not sold on Serrano yet in terms of that level, particularly for a playoff series. I think that they run into a similar problem like the Warriors did last year, that when you take away what they do best, can everything else beat you? And I'm not sold on, you know, Memphis, Portland, that that kind of team yet either. What about you? All right. Yeah, you make a good point about the Spurs. I don't think that any of these teams that we've seen so far are capable of getting to the level that they got to last year and I actually had a little bit of egg in my face last year because I said the Spurs are just kind of consistent they don't have like the absolute top level talent and so you worry about you think that there are other teams like absolute a game is better than Spurs well that clearly was false after the finals performance against Miami and some of some of those drubbings they put on Oklahoma City and Portland too so yeah I think I think that the Spurs have shown that they can get to a higher level on both ends than any of these teams that we're talking about right now. So that was a good point. I'm glad you said that because I agree with you. After that, I think the Warriors and Rockets, with the way they have played so far, have certainly played much better than anyone else. The Chicago has not really impressed me. I think you know they have a lot of work to do. Cleveland has a lot of work to do. I think OKC really, when you look at what their highest level has been, I still think that if you look simply at how they would play, they are like my pick to be the number two team in the league, especially with the Clippers. Uh, you know, I explained already what my issues are with them. So I think that they are really a little bit above. The problem is they're going to be winning three, trying to win three series on the road. And once you, once you get into that, 
then you're you're going to be in trouble. But I think just in terms of the quality of the basketball team, I've got them above any of these other teams right now. And then I think, you know, you kind of get into the scrum. What do you think about Memphis? We haven't talked about them at all. They're uh, almost undefeated. They lost to the Bucks the other day, but, you know, they've had a nice start to the season. What do you think about them? I like them a lot, but I think they're a better regular season team than playoff team. I think that they're a team that their intensity and all of that, I think, works really well in a one-off. I was explaining this to somebody recently, and they thought, that I think was it was a me. mean Elhas. Was that you? Well, we were talking about it, and I disagreed with you, but yeah. You disagreed with me, but yeah, that's that's my opinion on them. But they're, they're, they have a lot of talent. I love just the way that they the way that they play, and I think Mark, I don't know, I, I, I it feels like he's been different this year, but I'm not necessarily sure how I feel about it yet. Yeah, it's it's just hard for me to imagine them scoring enough to make it through three series and get into the Western Conference Finals. Uh, although I, th- I thought actually that if I were a betting man, they w- would have been a great bet at like I think they're like twenty eight to one. I saw them to win the the West. I thought that's actually not too bad of a bet, but nonetheless, I I don't think that they they just don't have quite the top end offensive talent to win three series in a row as far as I'm concerned. Although I I disagree with you. I think that they are a team who no matter who they play against is, is going to give them a tough series. They are not going to get blown out in a series because of how tough they are and how they defend. And also the fact that you can Zach Randolph, although these nights are fewer and further between, but you know, when he can go off and he just causes a ton of problems for even the burliest of power forward. So I actually think that they are, kind of a nightmare matchup in the playoffs more so necessarily than the regular season. I feel like they're a really tough six game series team. My challenge with them in terms of, as you said, with a playoff series is that one of the things I like to think about if if a team is going to be truly dangerous is what would I think about them playing a team that was their talent or better in a game seven on the road? And I feel like Memphis would have trouble in that situation with every every one of the top teams in the West, and that includes Houston. I That doesn't necessarily – that's not a huge indictment. I think that the top of the West is good enough that most teams are going to have trouble with that. But I, I see them ha- making every series tough. I think that's a great point. But I just – I don't see them winning those series. I see them making it hard. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have them as a favorite against the Warriors or the Rockets – or the Thunder, or the Spurs in a series right now, or or at least if not now, at least at the end of the at the end of the season. Has anyone to you in the East separated themselves kind of from anyone else? I've I've been very impressed with Miami, but at the same point, I feel like the second they lose Wade or Bosch for any period of time, they're just gonna they're gonna fall apart. And the Wizards are about what I thought they would be. The Raptors are the I think they're the best of the of the non Chicago Cleveland teams, but I don't think they've established that they're that they're ahead of everybody else in line. No, actually, I, I would be very encouraged if I were a Wizards fan to get off to a five and two start without. I mean, granted, they played like the Pacers twice. They played the Knicks. Like their their schedule's been pretty weak, but you know, just to get to bank five wins without Bradley Beal in the lineup for all of them, I think you can actually be pretty happy with that if you're a Wizards fan. Uh, I think, you know, Toronto has, has looked great. I think there's a team that really was slept on by a lot of people before this, especially considering how well they were in the regular season and then uh, last year and then the youth uh, that they have where you can really 
most of their key guys. You expect them to be better this year. And Miami really is probably one of the most fun watches in the league because I'd kind of forgotten what Wade and Bosch, how good those dudes were with the freedom. And it's, it's great to see those guys playing well. I, I hope to catch a few more of these East Coast teams, which, you know, it's a little harder to do, especially on weekdays, you know, for us West Coast guys. Yeah, I th- I I've been very happy. I think happy is the right word for it. As you said, for for Miami, for those guys that people are remembering that oh yeah, they're really really good basketball players. And what I've seen of Napier, I've liked. I I was lower on him than some going into yeah, the not, draft. Yeah, not I lower thought, than me. I agreed with you, but yeah, apparently he's been pretty good so far. Yeah, yeah, he's been he's been good so far and he fills a very important transitional role with them, which is that when you have LeBron James on your team, what you're looking for in a point guard is very different than a lot of other teams because you have a guy who can run your offense, not saying he has to all the time, but you can look more for defense and spot-up shooting. What I've seen from Napier is more of the guy who can run the show because I have very little faith that Cole and Chalmers can be that guy. They've never had to be that guy. I just don't see it. And Napier can do that, which actually, strangely enough, makes him, to me, a more logical fit for when Wade isn't on the floor, because Wade can do some stuff, and I like uh, he can initiate and things like that, as can McRoberts at moments. And so I think it'll be fun to see where they settle lineup-wise, because they have all of these interesting pieces. They have a lot of fun guys. They have a lot of good basketball players. I wish they had more rim protection, like so many other teams. <laughs> but they have these guys who not only are good basketball players, but have been in successful situations before. So they're going to, I think they're going to be one of those teams. If they can get, let's say the four of the five series and face, face a team, incidentally, maybe Toronto and just, I, I feel like that would just be an interesting series and also could potentially be very interesting. It could be strangely officiated, I guess I'll put it. Yeah, it could. The Nets are four and two. I think everyone was like, "Oh, they got blasted by the Celtics in that first game." So, like, I think they sort of dropped off the radar. But they've won four or five since then. The Bucks are better than anticipated. The Celtics are better than anticipated. I think there's a lot of teams that seem like they're better than anticipated, and then we've just had a few teams that have just been total doormats, and I think seem like they've kind of been absorbing all of the losses. But it, it does seem like there are going to be less terrible teams than there were last year, at least also, you know, the injuries haven't quite set in yet. That's, that obviously is a factor that, you know, are, are, is very difficult to anticipate. Yeah. The two that are sticking in my craw for the East, and I think they'll get there. It's obviously really early is I, I hoped for more early from Atlanta and Detroit. I, I feel like they'll get there. And I feel, I feel like Boston being in the playoffs right now is probably an aberration though. I do like Brad Stevens and the job that he's done, but I think, and obviously Cleveland technically is right now out of the playoffs and they're obviously going to be in. But the question that I wanted to ask you is what do you think, what teams, and obviously injuries will be a big factor in this, what three teams do you think will end the seasons with the three worst records in the league? Lakers, Sixers, Magic. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and I think actually it's not particularly close. Those are very easily the three worst teams in the league to me. I mean, who else? Who else is even a candidate for that category? Minnesota with Rubio's injury. Ooh, yeah, they were looking pretty good too. I like the. I, I thought they, they were, were. Be better than people expected. It's really a shame, but yeah, I mean, they're they're. I think their defense is really going to fall off a cliff now. Uh, without him, he's always underrated defender at the point of attack. And I mean, what are the, who's who are their point guards? Me, Levine and, and Bo Williams. Now that that 
it's going to be really bad on both ends, I think. They're starting a rookie who should not run an offense as their starting point guard, and their and his backup is Mo Williams. It's going to be it's going to be a disaster. Oh, they're starting I, I, Levine, huh? They're starting they're starting Zach. I, I watched a lot of that first game just because you know he went to my school, and I, I was intrigued because I had a very firm opinion on Zach on on Levine, and I had a very firm opinion that he's a two guard and that he shouldn't be running an offense and play him off the ball. And his first real role is running an offense with the starters and it went about as expected, <laughs> but the, yeah, I think honestly in the long-term vision, and this is why I thought the Thaddeus young component of the Kevin love trade was so misguided is they should, I don't want to call it tanking. They should just be bad this year and get that last, last really big piece. And whether it's Gio Okafor or whoever it is, and then be ready to roll on with that. And I feel like the Rubio injury might force that because they just can't win without it. Well, how about you just, you know, maybe see if the last year's number one overall pick, who you just traded for, Anthony Bennett, can play a little bit at power forward this year. I mean, even without the lure of a draft pick from being worse, they traded a first-round draft pick that they could have gotten for, who's that, from Miami? Yeah, for for one year of Thaddeus Young and the right to potentially overpay him Next year, even if you're not going to say, oh, we want to be worse this year, it still would have been more rational to try and get Bennett some experience, some confidence. You know, he's he worked pretty hard on his body. There's He's shown some signs. I mean, you know, granted, after such a bad year, I, I don't, I'm not predicting stardom by any means or even starterdom, but at least give him a shot. He, he got drafted number one overall for a reason. You're not going anywhere. Use that pick next year, and you get it, like, and you get a better pick next year for your own losses as well. Like those are three great reasons to have just held on to that pick instead of trading it for that young. Even if, you know, your goal was to maybe win this year, like you got to just have a little bit more understanding of where you are in the success cycle than that. I'll give you a fourth reason that is sticking out to me. It's that it's giving flip a reason not to play Gorgie Jang enough. And that is a big problem because, you talk about how Anthony Bennett's a part of their future. I think Jang, from what we saw late last year, I think he's a bigger part of it. And I think that their coach flip is kind of screwing GM flip because they're focusing on trying to win these games. And Jang is, is a factor in that. I think he helps them win games too, but for whatever reason, they're just not playing him very much. Well, I, I'm okay the first 20 games of the year go balls to the wall. You just try and win them. You never know. You could be Phoenix from last year. You know, you could be Charlotte from last year. You could be, maybe, maybe things are going to be different this year. They have a new coach. They got some new players. You don't know. You never know. Like, you're fine. If you want to just, like, bust your butt, pull out all the stops, those first 20 games, go ahead. Like, play who you think gives you the best chance to win. Don't worry about development. If you get to the point where you're clearly just not going anywhere, then you can start to have a little bit more of an eye towards the future. Yeah, that's definitely a fair point because, yeah, you you never know. And, yeah, you're right that if, if Phoenix had done that last year, had given up early in the year, who knows what would have happened. Are you as surprised as I am that Indiana is fifth from the bottom in offensive efficiency and not bottom from the bottom? I'm very surprised since I just found that out when you told me. Yeah, who's worst? Give me give me the bottom five. Are you looking at it right now? Yep. Yeah, what are, uh, what are so the bottom dr- five? Drum roll. So <laughs> fifth from the bottom is – fifth in the bottom is Indiana – Slightly behind them, I'll say, is Charlotte, then Orlando, 
then the Sixers, and then the Thunder. Huh. The th- oh, so the Thunder are last, huh? Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, especially when you consider Reggie Jackson hasn't even been there. But, yeah, uh, I-, I am very surprised by that, considering, I mean, like, if they hadn't just been gotten destroyed by injuries, I thought they actually, I mean, they've been competitive in every game, haven't they? Despite the fact that they, you know, haven't have only won the one. So, yeah, I, I believe in Vogel, and I, and I believe in his ability to coach, and I think he's done a great job considering who he's had at his disposal. Yeah, I'll openly admit to not having watched a lot of them because <laughs> when I, every time I watched them, it just made me feel sad. I watched a couple minutes of that Pacers-Celtics game and just got really depressed. I, I've seen, like, three quarters of them. That's more than me. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I feel like that's, that fulfills – I mean – that fulfills my obligation. Like, I'm not really watching much Thunder either because the point to me of watching all these games is just to gather information for the future. And I don't really care how some team that's missing its three best guys is is play, is going to play because it's just not going to be relevant necessarily going towards the future. I try to, like, maximize my watching to, like, gain more information for when the games really do count or, or provide some predictions for the season. And so I haven't watched much OKC and I haven't watched much – uh, Pacers because they've just been so injured. On that note, other than when it involves a team that I cover, I don't think I'll watch the Lakers until Nick Young comes back. I think I learn anything watching them or the teams that play them. Yeah, God, that that's, I mean, that's what makes the Randall injury so depressing was at least he was a reason to watch that team, right? Now it's just, I mean, so do you buy the, like, that this is stealth tanking from the Lakers? I mean, we know what their incentives are. You you touched on it in your earlier piece that we already talked about. You know, there's been Howard Beck said that he had a source tell him that you know this actually is tanking. What do you think? Is this intentional? Is, is there a little bit of that to this, or is it just kind of, uh, you know, they're just not doing a very good job? I think it's 90% not doing a good job. The The way that people argue it is they say things like, oh, the Lakers weren't going after a guy like Isaiah Thomas. And I think that did make them worse in the short term. But I also think that it was a smart decision for the Lakers to not go, well, maybe Isaiah at the price he came at because he was so cheap. He was cheaper than, he went at a lower salary than I expected. But the general concept is you if you're the Lakers, you don't want to tie up your cap space with players that, aren't necessarily going to be seen as assets if you're going to go after the big guys. So I'm fine with doing the rental strategy with guys like Carlos Boozer. The the Boozer amnesty pickup is the reason why I don't think they were stealth tanking because even though, and you can attest to this as somebody who follows the Bulls more closely than I do, Carlos Boozer is an amazing guy to get if you're stealth tanking. But I don't oh, yeah. think that's why they got. I don't think that's why they got him. I think they got him because they thought, oh, well, he'll he'll help us compete. They didn't think, oh wow, if we play him with Jeremy Lin and Kobe, every single person will, every single team will have a layup line against us. Yeah, I I don't think they thought that way. So my answer is that I think there were certain decisions that they could have made and they didn't. Like, let's say, for example, they had given Eric Bledsoe a big offer sheet, which I actually think might have been an interesting idea for them. I understand why they didn't do that, but... Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, but so 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 I think that when you sign Nick Young to the contract they signed him for, when you sign Jordan Hill to the contract they signed him for, I don't think you're stealth tanking. I think you acknowledge the possibility that you're going to be a bad team, but I don't think they were trying to be as bad as possible because if they were trying to be as bad as possible, they wouldn't have spent the money they spent on the guys they chose to spend it on. 
Well, let's. I have no idea what their internal motivations are. It's just been all based on like the that Howard Beck thing. But let's take a look at some of some of the transactions. If your goal was to tank while still convincing your fan base, because remember, you know, there's been reporting that their TV ratings actually determine how much they're making from that massive TV contract. So they do have to come up with some way to drum up a modicum of excitement among the fan base. Well, you hire like a Laker legend in Byron Scott. You get Magic Johnson to stop tweeting negative things about your coach and get him on board. You get someone like Carlos Boozer, who we know is not a player who contributes to winning basketball, but most fans who aren't really paying attention know that he started for the Bulls and, and you know, gets certain numbers, and, and they recognize him as being good. They don't realize that he's 32 and, you know, he can't play any defense. You know, you have a guy like Jordan Hill who gets some numbers, but he's going to play center and he can't protect the rim. You have Kobe come back and let him shoot as many times as he wants to. Uh, you bury someone like Ed Davis on the bench, even though he's a superior player to Boozer. I mean, the, like the number of minutes that they're playing Boozer is pretty ridiculous at this point, although they wouldn't be the first team to award undeserved minutes to a veteran. But so, I mean, we don't know what their their motivation is, but there's certainly a way you could twist it into thinking that's what they're doing. And frankly, if I were a Lakers fan, I would be loving every minute of it because they have to keep that pick. If they lose that pick, it's going to be just a massive failure for them. Like nothing that can possibly happen this season is as important as keeping that pick. And that's why, you know, I, I've been very, you know, I don't, I don't think tanking is, is a big deal just in the aggregate season long tanking. That's why I hate protected picks because the incentives are just too strong to ignore. If they're a rational team, they would be tanking. And, you know, that's why I don't like those protected picks. You know what's funny? You were building on that whole answer, and I thought you were building to how the Jeremy Lin acquisition was the crown jewel of that concept. Yeah, no, I totally forgot he, about him. That's a, yeah, and that, that Lin, Lin is the masterpiece in that, because not only did they get a pick from Houston for paying him money, he's going to make them money in the short term, and he's not going to make them good enough, especially with, sadly enough, Steve Nash being out. He's not going to make them good enough to be relevant. So he he's perfect, because he makes them interesting he brings in an audience he bring he has a following I covered the Golden State Warriors when he was on the team and never playing and there was an interest in him that there was never an interest in bench players so I'm not I'm not going to attribute anything more to it than that but there is something there he's also a very entertaining player I'm not saying oh you know he's a sideshow he's a, he's a good player he's entertaining no, was, I can understand why trade for them even you know regardless of whether they're trying to just drum up some excitement yeah or not. yeah it was it, it was genius and so a lot of it made sense in that direction. Protected picks is the big scourge of the league right now, and there are a couple different ways that they could fix it, but you're seeing it in that situation, and as we alluded to earlier, I think we're going to see it from the Kings, because the Kings pick is top 10 protected, and that might be right around, they might be hovering around 12th or 13th when they realize they have no chance of making the playoffs, and then the mysterious injuries will begin, but the fun thing will be, will DeMarcus Cousins play well enough to still have them win enough games to give the Bulls <laughs> the 11 pick? Because I honestly think that's what's going to happen. I think they're going to give the Bulls the 11th or 12th pick, and then every other team in the Eastern Conference, every fan base is going to cry bloody murder. Well, we finally 
have reached the uh, what we hoped for with the overreaction podcast. Danny LaRue calls Lakers trade for Jeremy Lin genius and calls protected picks the scourge of the league. So we finally have gotten some overreaction. This is what people really came here to listen to at the hour and 24-minute mark. So we should, we should probably wrap it up at this point. I think the way that I want to wrap it up is what are you looking forward to seeing in the next couple of weeks? You know, now we have an idea of certain things. It can be things that you don't know or confirming some things, but what are you most looking forward to in the next couple of weeks? I'm looking forward to seeing whether the Pels can stay in it or not, whether Anthony Davis is going to keep playing this well, whether their lack of depth is going to kill them. And are they going to be above 500 to the point where we can think about them making the playoffs or are they going to be kind of piddling around um, whether the Warriors and Rockets can keep it up and what happens with Cleveland obviously that's the number one thing I mean if they if they play like this for another two three weeks that's when you can really start getting worried about it yeah I, I think that you those are all definitely good ones I'll add in I'm intrigued to see if Milwaukee can keep it up I'm been encouraged by them and they're a team that like a couple of these other teams, the ones we talked about earlier, that they don't need to define success in terms of wins and losses, but if they get them, great. And I'm going to really look forward to watching them play, watching Houston play. I don't think Beal's going to be back in the next two weeks, but once Beal gets back to see what the Wizards look like will be very encouraging. And I still have a glimmer of hope for Denver. I was high on them early in the season. I like their talent, even though I think they have – some of the same flaws that they had with Carl, but they just don't have George Carl as their coach, which is a problem. I I, mm. I want to see somebody, like one of those teams that is a little bit out on the outside looking in right now make a little bit of a run, because it's going to happen with somebody, and maybe it doesn't persist, but I want to see that that little surge with some fan base that they go, yeah, yeah, we, we have something to fight for this season. I mean, I guess the other thing we'll be watching for, sadly, is injuries. I think there there are so many teams right now that really look like they're playing well enough to be playoff teams or even to be, you know, high seeds in the playoffs. And I think that injuries are going to be the big differentiator, uh, as unfortunate as that may be. Yeah, I think that's definitely a good point. And I think what we're seeing is there are about, you know, let's say 10 to 11 teams in each conference, I think, that are in the playoff mix. And what I'm feeling like it will the the main differentiator will be how healthy they say. I think we, we saw with a team like Memphis last year that a team can – survive without without their best player for a period of time but it's going to be hard when the when it runs probably 10 deep in the west and who the hell knows with the east all right well i i can't wait to watch some more games though this has been an awesome year so far i'm really excited about it and that's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, that's why we probably just talked for like 90 90 minutes about it yeah it's been <laughs> it's been and it's and it's been a lot of fun games you know it's not just close games that's a distinction that I like to make is there are close games and there are fun games and they're not always the same I've there have been games that I've really enjoyed watching that Milwaukee Memphis game was really interesting I think that there have been and the high-end teams this year are all fascinating for their own reasons the Warriors are fun to watch to see if they can do that the t the East teams are still question marks, and I mean honestly, the the great team that I've watched the least of recently, other than their great game against the Suns, is the Spurs because I feel like we know what they yeah. we have an idea yeah. of what they're going to be, and they're kind of looming over this whole conversation. Is oh yeah, and the Spurs are prob the Spurs are still the the favorites for the title. Yeah, you know I I tweeted this today, and and people seem to agree with me that this is to me 
right now the most beautiful basketball that's ever been played in the NBA. Now that illegal defense is gone, and now that and there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, back in the 90s, people have nostalgized that, or even the 80s. But so much of that was just two-man game on one side of the floor, either pick and roll or posting up, and three dudes standing above the three-point line with guys that had to guard them or just come and aggressively double-team. That's what a lot of half-court offense was back in the day. They didn't shoot threes back then. Threes are really exciting. And there wasn't quite as much ball movement as, as there is now. And then you got, I think we have, you know, Mike D'Antoni can take a lot of the credit for that, to our current basketball with his system and emphasis on spacing. And oddly enough, I think that Tom Thibodeau actually deserves a lot of the credit for some of the beautiful offensive basketball that we're seeing today. And the reason for that is he was the one who finally came up with the best way to use the fact that there wasn't illegal defense anymore and you could strong side zone everything. And it basically made it so isolations didn't really work that well anymore. And when that happened, teams had to find another way. And, you know, the Spurs were the ones who started it by combining elements of the D'Antoni system with lots of dribble handoff action. You know, Tom Thibodeau iced the pick and roll. And so a good way to get past that is with a lot of these dribble handoffs and back doors. And now everybody's running it. The ball moves from side to side. You've got Atlanta. You've got Utah playing beautiful basketball. The Bulls throw a lot of passes. The Warriors now have taken on a similar system. You've got lots of teams. All you're hearing is moving the ball, pass, 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 you know, reverse the ball from one side to the other, make cuts. And it's just great basketball. I love it. I agree completely. Can't think of a better way to end it. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, man. Uh, pleasure. Thanks again to Nate Duncan for taking the time to come on. You can read him at Basketball Insiders. That is basketballinsiders.com. Or you can follow him on Twitter at NateDuncanNBA. That's N-A-T-E-D-U-N-C-A-N-N-B-A. It was a lot of fun to do the podcast. I love, love the stuff that we hit. I think there were a lot of big topics in there and a lot of things that he and I and other people obviously will flesh out over the next few weeks. You really should follow him on Twitter. His in-game tweets, I think, are the best of anybody in the game right now, which is not because he's nice enough to be a guest. It's just it's what I believe. So podcast will keep going on. I'm really happy with how things have been going, and your input is very important to this process. You can hit me up on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, or you can email me daniel.larue at realgm.com whatever makes you happy I admit that I check Twitter more but I read everything, I respond to as much as I can and the goal is to make it as good an experience because if you're good enough to listen to this then I deserve, then I, it's my job to make a podcast that is worthy of that time so thank you so much for listening take care and make it a great day Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolor paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. 
Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 400,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how.